Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, one of the things that I find gets harder with every passing year is kneeling. Can I get an amen? You know, it, it used to be that it was no big deal to get down on the floor and play with my grandkids and their Legos and their trains and their dinosaurs and baby dolls or whatever they were into at the time. But these days I find that when they want me to get down on the floor and play with them, I have to think it over a minute before I do that to make sure that I'm going to be able to get back up again. So far, it's not been a problem, but I can tell that with every passing year, it's going to get harder and harder. But I've also noticed that the reluctance to kneel is not just a symptom of old age. It's becoming a characteristic of our culture. Oh, you'll still see on occasion a young man kneeling uh, before a young woman on Facebook as he proposes to her. Or you might see the occasional athlete kneeling in protest during the national anthem. But it's becoming increasingly rare to find people kneel out of reverence for God. Oh, there are still those uh, churches where it's part of their worship, and you'll hear the parishioners joking about stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel. But it's increasingly rare today because we're in a culture where fewer and fewer people have faith anymore. And the idea of kneeling to a deity seems not only hopelessly old-fashioned, but maybe is considered even politically incorrect. And so some of the same people who will applaud a Colin, Colin Kaepernick for kneeling in protest during the national anthem will ridicule a Tim Tebow for kneeling on the field out of reverence for Christ. But we better get over our reluctance to kneel before the Lord Jesus because the scripture says that there is coming a day when every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if we're all eventually going to kneel in reverent adoration before the king, it might be a good idea to get some practice in now. As we continue in our series, Holy Roar, eight words that will change the way you worship, we've been looking at Hebrew words that are translated praise in our English Old Testaments, but they all have a little different connotation to them, a little different flavor. And we've been learning that Worship is really a multifaceted thing. It's not just one thing. It's got multiple dimensions. And by looking at these different words, we've been growing in our understanding of that and growing in our understanding of, of the different ways God deserves to be worshipped and how we can best offer that worship. And so, so far, we've looked at the words yada, which means to go public with your confession of praise. We've looked at halal, which has to do with the celebration of praise, shabach, last week, which had to do with the shout of praise, and our Hebrew word for today is barak, 
I want you to say that out loud with me. Barak. Now, in Hebrew, this word barak means to adore on bended knee. In our English Bibles, it's usually translated praise or bless, but it carries the connotation of kneeling before the Lord as an act of worship. And one of the places where we see this word barak frequently used is in Psalm 103, which is our focus for the morning. Uh, from the very first verse to the very last verse, you find this emphasis on barak, baracking the Lord, uh, adoring the Lord on bended knee. And so the psalm begins by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, barak the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, barak his holy name. And then the very last verse concludes by saying, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. And so the psalm is encouraging us to praise the Lord by baracking him, by kneeling before him in adoration. Psalm 103 is a psalm of David, and it's sometimes called a pure note of praise, because unlike some of David's other psalms, where he begins with a complaint or by talking about a life situation he's going through, and then eventually he gets around to expressing his confidence in the Lord and even worshiping the Lord, Psalm 103 begins with praise and ends with praise and is filled with praise all the way through. And so it begins with David having a conversation with his own soul about all the reasons he has for praising God. He's reminding himself that if even he, the mighty king, should get on his knees in adoration of the king of kings, then so should God's people. And so then he speaks to the nation of, of Israel about all that God has done for them, inviting God's people to join in this praise. And he ends by invoking all of creation to join in this symphony of praise to God. And as the circle widens, the praise builds, and David tells us seven times over throughout this psalm, our God is so great we should all bow before him. Our God is so great we should all bow before him. Now let me take you into the psalm to show you how he develops this conviction as I have alluded to, there, there are three basic movements to the psalm, and with each succeeding movement, the praise of the psalm builds. It begins by David saying, I should personally praise God for all that he's done for me. I should personally praise God for all he has done for me. Verse 1 starts off by saying, Bless the Lord, Barak the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, Barak, his holy name. Baraki nafsi ha'adonai. It says in Hebrew, Barak Yahweh, kneel in adoration before the Lord, O my soul. This is a call to praise that is directed inward. He's rousing himself to shake off apathy and to kindle his inward affections in praise to God to the point of kneeling in worship before him. And he recognizes that the task is so big, so worthwhile, that it's going to take everything he's got Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He needs to put his whole heart into it. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm feeling a little sorry for myself or maybe a little bored or apathetic, I need to say this to myself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And more than that, David goes on in verse 2 to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Adore the Lord on bended knee, O my soul, and don't forget what he's done for you. Do you know what's the opposite of 
praising God or blessing God. And you might say, oh, well, it'd be cursing God, right? Or hating God or disobeying God. And all of those things would be true. But David implies that there's something else that is opposite of blessing the Lord, and that's forgetfulness. You know, if I forget what God has done for me, I rob God of the praise he deserves for that. I think one of the hazards of being a Christian for a long time is just that, is, is forgetfulness, is forgetting what he's done for me. And so I don't praise him. I don't give him the credit he deserves for all that. I mean, I've been a follower of Jesus for over 60 years. And I, I know that there are times when I take God's blessings in my life for granted. They're so normal to me that I often, you know, take them for granted. I mean, I forget that people who don't know Jesus perhaps have never experienced the blessings that I've had in life. People who've recently come to Christ who can still remember what God saved them from are probably more apt to, to praise God for what he's done in their lives because they're closer to seeing what God has done. Longtime Christians like me, and maybe like you, are prone to become forgetful. Reminds me of the story of a group of friends. They turned 30 years old. They decided to have a reunion. And they said, well, where should we go out for dinner? And somebody said, let's go to that Glowing Embers restaurant. I hear it's got a really hip vibe. So they all agreed. 15 years later, they're having another reunion. They're turning 45. They say, well, where should we go for dinner? And somebody says, let's go to that Glowing Embers restaurant. I hear they have a really fine food and wine list. So they all agreed. 15 more years go by, they're going to have another reunion. Somebody says, where should we go for dinner? And somebody says, uh, let's go to that Glowing Embers restaurant. It's, it's quiet. You can have a nice conversation there. And they've got great early bird specials. <laughs> and they all agreed. 15 more years go by. Now they're 75. Somebody says, where should we go for dinner? Somebody says, let's go to that Glowing Embers restaurant. It's handicap accessible. And I hear they even <laughs> have an elevator. So they all agreed. Fifteen more years go by, and they're going to have one last reunion. They're 90 years old, and somebody says, well, where should we go for dinner? And somebody says, let's go to that Glowing Embers restaurant. We've never been there before. <laughs> and they all agreed. <laughs> See, the point is that some of us have walked with Jesus for so long that we've begun to forget. We forget how God has blessed us down through the years. We've, we've known his blessings so long that we've begun to take them for granted, but forgetfulness robs God of praise. So David exhorts his soul not to forget, and so he purposely reminds himself of all the benefits that God has brought about in his life. He's speaking here from his personal experience with God. He's talking to his own soul. Now, your list won't be exactly like David's, but we would all do well to think what would be on our own list if we were to rewrite Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5 for ourselves. David's rehearsal of God's benefits in his life provokes us to remember how God has blessed us, and it's in the remembering that we're provoked in our own souls to praise him. Forget not all his benefits, David says, for who forgives all your iniquities who heals all your diseases. The very first benefit of God that David celebrates is God's forgiveness, and well he should because he'd been forgiven a lot. Uh, reflecting on that whole terrible episode of his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, David wrote two psalms reflecting on the depth of God's forgiveness, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. 
They're great psalms. You can look them up at home on your own. And, and, and that's, I think, for, for not forgetting God's forgiveness, but remembering that he forgives all your iniquity, that's one that most all of us should have at the top of our list, right? If God has forgiven your sin, if you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, and you know that because of his death on the cross to pay for your sin, and because he rose from the dead, victor over sin and death, that you know that by faith in him your sins have been forgiven and will never be held against you again, that's something to praise God for, don't you think? Now let me say this though, if you are here today and you're saying, I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven, I'm not sure that God could forgive what I've done. I'd love to have a conversation with you before you leave today. I want you to leave here today knowing your sins have been forgiven. And so if that describes you today, instead, the other pastor is going to be here as usual in the front for people who need prayer. But I'm going to go across the hall. You go out this door and straight across the hall you'll find the prayer room. And, and if you're in that situation where you're just not sure about that, you'd like to know more about how you can know for certain that your sins are forgiven, come and talk with me after the service. I'll be there just for you. Had a great conversation with somebody after first service, and maybe there'd be one or two or three. It doesn't matter how many come. We'll, we'll talk about how you can know that your sins are forgiven right after the service today. But if you know that your sins are forgiven, that needs to be at the top of your list. Forget not all his benefits who forgives all all your iniquity. And then David says, who heals all your diseases. Now remember, this is David talking to himself about all the blessings in his life for which he should be giving thanks. And apparently, somewhere along the way, David had had an illness that God had healed him of, and he knows that he needs to, to praise God for that. He shouldn't forget about that. Now, we need to be careful not to take David's report of how God healed him and make it a guarantee that God will always heal our every disease. This is David reporting on what God has done for him. We know that when we ask for healing in his sovereignty and for reasons only he understands, he chooses to heal some and not to heal others. But David's experience, at least, was that God had healed his diseases. Can anyone here today bear witness that God has healed you? then don't forget to praise God for that. Who forget, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. And then he says, verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. When David talks about God redeeming his life from the pit, he may be thinking about all those times when King Saul was pursuing him to kill him and he was forced to hide out, even in the caves of En Gedi literally in the pit. But God delivered him from the hand of Saul, delivered him from the pit. Can anyone here bear witness that God has delivered you from a life-threatening situation? Then by all means, praise him for that. God not only delivered him from Saul, but made him king in Saul's place. And so David says, you know, forget not how God crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He may be thinking here of the day of his coronation. When that crown was put on his head, making him king of Israel, David basking in the steadfast love and mercy of God. David is saying here, he, he forgives me, he heals me, he delivers me, he loves me, he crowns me. And then he says, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He adds that David 
David says that God satisfies me and, and renews me. David is actively engaging here in a process of calling to mind all the good things that God has done for him in the midst of threatening circumstances he couldn't control and even in the face of troubles of his own making. And that remembering drives him to his knees in adoration of the Lord. Now, David's list of all of the Lord's benefits should provoke us to think about what would be on our list. If you were to rewrite verses 1 through 5 for yourself, what would they, what would they say? I, mine would go like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your hurts, who guided your steps from the time you were young who blessed you with godly parents who love Jesus, who satisfies you with a loving wife and family and blesses the work of your hands. That's what I would say. What would you say? Make your own list today. Rehearse his benefits in, in your heart and, and let that remembrance drive you to your knees in adoration of the Lord. So David starts this psalm kind of like a solo trumpet playing, playing out loud. And, and, and he's saying, I should personally praise God for all he has done for me. And then in the middle movement of the psalm, the, the orchestra comes in to play along with David. It's no longer about God's dealings just with David, but about how God has dealt so mercifully with the nation of Israel. And the praise being offered be, moves from just one voice to the voices of many. The praise begins to build. So it starts with saying, I should praise God for all he has done for me. And then it goes on to say, we should praise God for how he has dealt mercifully with us. The king is saying, oh, Israel, remember what God has done for us. He says in verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. He's saying to the, to the nation, when we were oppressed... People, slaves in Egypt, the Lord brought about justice for us. His righteous judgment fell upon Egypt and we were delivered. And God raised up Moses and made himself known to us. And through Moses and Aaron made his ways known to us. He gave us the law. He led us by a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He parted seas and rivers for us. He fed us manna in the wilderness. He drove out our enemies before us so that we lived in cities we had not built and ate grapes from, from vineyards we had not planted. And David could add that during his own reign, the Lord had given them victory everywhere David had gone. And through it all, David says, the Lord has been so gracious and patient with us. Verse 9, the Lord, or verse 8 rather, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Did you know this is exactly how God described himself to Moses in Exodus 34 and verse 6? Do you remember that when Moses went up the mountain the first time to receive the Ten Commandments, the people got tired of waiting for Moses, and so they made for themselves a golden idol, a, a, a calf, a golden calf, which then they worshipped, and they're dancing around this calf and worshipping this idol. As Moses is coming down the mountain and he sees all this, he realizes that as he carries the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the people are violating the first two before he can even get there. In anger, he throws down the tablets and smashes them. He comes down and, and puts down this idolatry cult, and he pleads with the, with, with the Lord for, in mercy for the people that he would forgive their sin. 
Well, God calls Moses back up the mountain to give him a, a, a replicate copy of the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is meeting with the Lord there, the Lord says to him, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's why I've done what I've done with these people, Moses. This is who I am. Well, David is saying, people of Israel, don't you remember how the Lord has always dealt with us? He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And then he goes on in verse 9 to speak of God's gracious dealings with this nation that had so often wandered away from him, deserving his discipline. He says he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Yes, there are times when we anger the Lord, but he has always proved to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Israel had given God plenty to be angry about. Time and time again, he was patient with Israel, giving them opportunity after opportunity to repent. By rights, he should have judged the nation many times over. On several occasions, he would have been justified wiping them out altogether. But David says, no, here's the kind of God we have. Verse 10, he does not repay a deal with us according to our iniquities, nor does he repay us according to our sins. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Boy, I don't know about you, but I'm glad that the Spirit of God inspired David to write as far as the east is from the west and not as far as the north is from the south. Because if you think about it, if you go north and north and north and north and north, you're eventually going to reach what? The North Pole. And then the very next step you take, now what direction are you going? South. There's a place where north and south meet. It's at the North Pole, if you will. But if you go east from here and you keep going east, 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 guess what? There's never a point at which you're now going west. East and west never meet. I, I think it's just a point of genius that the Spirit of God you know, inspired David to write, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There, there's a point where, where east and west never meet. That's how far our sins have been removed. He goes on to say, you know, we, we might describe this God of ours who does this for us as a compassionate father who accommodates the frailties of his, his weak and foolish children. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. Why does he even put up with us? He knows how frail and silly we are, how temporary our lives are. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. He's talking here about the summertime in Israel where grass would spring up and even flowers here and there. But then eventually the season turns and the summer comes and the winds come in off the desert and, and that grass gets dried up, burned up just like that. And before long, you can't even tell where it was. And he says, yeah, for the, verse 16, for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. That's what we're like. That's how temporary our lives are. But, he says, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. We may be weak and our lives may be brief, but God's love for the children who live in covenant relationship with him is tenacious from everlasting to everlasting. David is saying that 
Israel has known the mercy and grace of God like no other people who have ever walked the face of the earth. And as David recounts, not only the ways God has blessed him personally, but how God has blessed the nation corporately, the circle of praise begins to widen and the praise begins to build. Well, shouldn't our praise be like that? I will praise God for his personal benefits to me. But then we should praise God for his merciful dealings with us. I mean, that Bayside Chapel is healthy and strong and advancing the gospel of Jesus is testimony to the mercy and grace of God. Thirteen years ago, this church was in crisis. The sin of some of her leaders had been exposed. People were disillusioned and divided. A number of people had left. The giving had suffered. Budgets had to be cut. Some staff had to be let go. Some wondered if the church would even survive. And by rights, God could have turned his back on this place altogether. But I believe it was in response to the prayers of godly people here who pleaded for God's mercy and the healing of this wounded congregation, that God poured out his grace and his mercy and has seen fit to bless us again. You want proof that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love? You want proof that the Lord is a compassionate father? Then just look at the mess that Bayside Chapel had become and how God has chosen to use us in recent years. I'd, I'd say we've been blessed beyond what we deserve. Can I get an amen? amen. Isn't he good? Hasn't he been good to us? Then we should join in praising him together for his merciful dealings with us. Our God is so great, we should all bow before him. I will personally praise God for all he has done for me. We should praise God for how he has dealt mercifully with us. And then, thirdly, in the last stanza of the him, David says, all creation should praise God for how he reigns over all. Verse 19 goes on to say, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You see, unlike the gods of the surrounding nations whose thrones were in man-made temples, idols of wood and stone, the Lord has established his own throne in the heavens. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need anybody to make a temple for him. And his temple isn't here on earth. He has established his throne in the heavens. And unlike the pagan nations, the surrounding nations who believe that they have the God of the seas or theirs was the God of the plains or theirs was the God of the hills, David says, well, our God rules over it all. And so the whole of creation must be enlisted in this symphony of praise. David's praise is a good start, but not nearly enough. To bring in the praise of the nation is a good addition, but the Lord is such a great king, he deserves even more. And so this song of praise needs to build to a glorious crescendo. And David enlists the help of beings greater than ourselves in an attempt to make the Lord's praise truly glorious. And so in verse 20, he says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Our God is so great that even mighty angels are bidden to bow before him on bended knee. Oh, if only David could have been there that night outside of Bethlehem, his hometown, when an angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds announcing the birth of Jesus, our Messiah, the Savior. And it says that on that occasion, an angel, or with the angel appeared a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. If David could have been there to say it, I think he would have said, well, that's more like it. 
that's more like the kind of praise our God deserves. But why stop with just the angels? He goes on in verse 21 to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all his, or bless the Lord, all his hosts, rather, his ministers who do his will. Now, when he talks about the hosts here, he's most likely talking about the heavenly hosts, the, the sun, the planets, the moon, and the stars, those beings that move at his command, giving light to the earth and warming the earth and causing the tides to rise and fall. David is saying, our God is so great that all the heavenly hosts should bow in humility before him. And why stop just with them? Verse 22, he says finally, bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. All of God's creation everywhere is invited to join in this mighty chorus, praising the Lord on bended knee. Now, if it seems strange that David would enlist things like stars and planets and animals and inanimate objects to join in praising God, consider this. Research in the field of bioacoustics has revealed that every day we are surrounded by millions of ultrasonic songs, songs that are beyond the threshold of our hearing. Did you know, for instance, that the electron shell of a carbon atom produces the same harmonic scale as a Gregorian chant? Or that whale songs can travel thousands of miles underwater? Or that meadowlarks have a range of 300 notes? Supersensitive sound instruments have discovered that even earthworms make faint staccato sounds. Arnold Summerfield, the German physicist and pianist, observed that a single hydrogen atom emits 100 frequencies making it more musical than a grand piano that emits only 88. Science writer Lewis Thomas summed it up this way. He said, if we had better hearing and could discern the singing of seabirds, the rhythmic drumming of schools of mollusks, and even the distant harmonics of flies hanging in, over a meadow in the sun, the combined sound might lift us off our feet. Maybe that's why the Spirit of God inspired David to write, bless the Lord all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. We may not have ears to hear all of those songs, all the songs of God's creation, but he hears them, and they are all invited to join in this building song of praise. And so this symphony of praise reaches its grand crescendo. The Lord's praise builds and builds until every last instrument is playing a part. But through it all, you can still hear that solo trumpet. David, the king, leading us all. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Or bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Baraki nafsi ha Adonai. O my soul, acknowledge the greatness of our God. Come adore him on bended knee. Our God is so great that we should all bow before him. In a few moments, we're going to stand together and sing a song. It's an old worship song by Chris Tomlin, We Fall Down. And we're going to invite you, if, if you're so moved, you feel free to, to kneel before the Lord as we sing this song. Uh, don't feel obligated, but if that's the response of your heart, you feel free to do so today. And I want to remind you, too, that if, if you are here today and you just don't have the assurance of, of the fact that your sins are forgiven. I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'll be in the prayer room right out this door. 
when the service concludes. Let's stand together for a closing prayer and then we'll sing that song. Father God, it is with hearts filled with awe of your greatness that we come before you today acknowledging that you are so great that we should all bow before you in worship. You deserve that and so much more. So we acknowledge you today, our Lord and King. We fall down before you and, and raise our voices, praising your name. We praise you most of all for Jesus, giving you thanks for his awesome work on our behalf, setting us free from the guilt and grip of sin, coming to live in us so that we can live the life you always wanted us to live. Lord, we adore you as we come before you saying, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, we offer this song to you in Jesus' name. Amen.